After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord shall it be provided. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Dear Lord, in the midst of the many words, both within and without, both familiar and strange, may you, the living word, encounter us in this word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From the beginning of storytelling, there have been heroes. In classic and mythical tradition, they often possess superhuman characteristics. The strength of Hercules, um, the beautiful music ability of Orpheus, often wisdom as well. And these heroes are, more often than not, the, the product of divine human coupling. And heroes are always tested. They have crucibles and ordeals in front of them. And often these are set up by the gods themselves. Tragic heroes are those who, in spite of their virtue and ability, possess a fatal flaw or make a crucial mistake that inevitably leads to their fall or innocent people dying, including often the ones they love the most. And sometimes these victims are their children. In the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, King Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter because he's angered Artemis. The half-historical legendary or mixed-historical legendary figure, the founder of the Republic of Rome, 
Lucius Junius Brutus, has to oversee the execution of two of his sons who were part of the conspiracy to bring back the king. Shakespeare alludes to this when he's talking about the alleged descendant of Brutus, the Brutus who ultimately is part of the assassination of Julius Caesar. The Abraham cycle certainly has heroic elements to it, right? He faces many an ordeal. Uh, he is a warrior and conquers, you know, an army that may be bigger than his, or at least tribal raiding groups, right? He makes mistakes. And yet, he's just a man. But today, he faces the ultimate crucible, the ultimate testing. Now, one biblical approach to the problem of suffering or, or trials and tribulations and testing is to say that it's what God uses to bring about character in us or patience. James 1, for instance, count it all joy when you fall into all manner of testing. And I think for some, this is a way to bring some semblance of meaning and order to chaos, to tragedy, things going wrong in my workplace, when I'm in the hospital room, when I'm planning a funeral. And I never judge the way people try to deal with the, you know, with their own misfortune, their own tragedies. And, and sometimes this actually might be the best way or the best perspective about certain kinds of trials and tribulations. For instance, the temptations of Jesus are there to be a model for us um, in our own temptations, our own testing, right? And it's really where Jesus kind of confirms his identity. It's, it's a model for how we, in our spiritual journeys, find out who we really are and who we belong to. But I do think there are limits and extreme problems with this view. Some suffering and evil are so great, to place them at the feet of God would seem to make God the author of evil. Which brings us to today's passage, Genesis 22. It's an alien word in our day, and I think probably for most days. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, the son of promise. Now, I thought a lot about this. First of all, part of what makes this a strange story, even before we get to the uh, <laughs> potential infanticide, is that we live in a day and age where people do not sacrifice, sacrifice much for their spiritual life. Or for that matter, God. Now, there are some who do. But, you know, for instance, when Mother Teresa, before she died, she really was outspoken about her not wanting to be made a saint. It wasn't only her humility that drove her to say such things, but she said in so many words or less that if you make me a saint, then you get off the hook, <laughs> right? If we, if we make somebody extraordinary, then we don't have to live the way they do. We don't have to think about the things they thought about. I can't remember which church historian said this, but uh, the Western church has always liked its saints dead, right? Because a living saint is too problematic. <laughs> but, you know, we make these folks 
you know, superheroes almost, so we don't have to sacrifice the way they do. But there's more going on here, obviously. And I've thought a lot about this. And if God asked me to sacrifice one of my sons, even though I have four, I have a couple to spare. No, you don't. I'm, that's a bad joke. I would say no. I just cannot see me ever consenting to even come close to doing it. And even if he appeared in all his glory, and if I had the courage, which I probably would not, but if I did, I would want to say something to him like, why are you testing me in such a way? Now, don't get me wrong. There have been times I wanted to kill them. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I would feel like Abraham did in, in chapter 18, which we talked about last week. How is it that the God of the, of the just is, is acting unjustly? Now, it's quite possible, if I wasn't immediately struck down, uh, that God would say something to me like he said to Job, right? Who are you, O mortal? <laughs> right? Uh, it's funny. We don't like this God. But I, I, think, <laughs> I think there is a tendency in our day and age to make God like a big Mr. Rogers, right? And Mr. Rogers was great. Yeah, may his memory be blessed, right? But I'm not sure Mr. Rogers is worth getting up to, to, to worship, right? I'm not sure Mr. Rogers is worth giving my life for. Uh, a fine example of how I might live, but not worth sacrificing my life for, right? Kierkegaard said that if any other person would have attempted what Abraham did, and uh, again, this is from Fear and Trembling. I referenced it, uh, Fear and Trembling, this week in my blog, blog um, preparing for this sermon. But Kierkegaard said that if any other person would have attempted what Abraham did, we would call him either a murderer, a madman, or a monster. Maybe, uh, you know, from my perspective, all three, Right. But Abraham is the knight of faith. So there's something else going on here. There's something that, that we need to pause and, and ponder a bit. I thought about this, that in the days after 9-11, and I thought about it when it happened, if one of my sons had chosen to enlist, and at the time I had two that actually could have enlisted. They were both in college, but they were old enough to be to, to sign up. Or if it was December 8th, 1941, and they were wanting to enlist, I would not have stood in the way of them serving their country. And even beyond those kind of extraordinary situations, if, let's say, they came upon a disaster or a burning building, I think I know who they are. And, and I think that their instincts and their values would be to rush in there to see if they could save someone. Now, this does... Raise a question for me in this thought experiment. 
If I theoretically am open to sacrificing my sons for my country, if I could theoretically see my sons sacrificing their lives to save strangers, why am I so committed to refusing God, theoretically? And I think that's part of what this story is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to evoke a kind of self-examination. Our initial reaction is to be appalled at Abraham or deny the right of a deity or anyone to ask such a thing. And I think that's the absolute right. You know, that's what, that's, that's what it means to be normal, sane, and moral to react this way, right? But at a second or third or 50th glance, <laughs> I think it can make us ask a deeper question about whether my faith is in God, who truly is other, or merely a projection of my own values or the culture I'm a part of. See, this was particularly why Kierkegaard was attracted to this story. I think there's two reasons, well, more than two reasons, but a couple of reasons why he was attracted to this story was precisely that, because the religion of his day and age, the the Protestant uh, softball uh, Lutheranism of his day and age, um, had really become a kind of state morality. And, and not only is he reacting to that, but he's also reacting to the Enlightenment. Matter of fact, this book, Fear and Trembling, which talks about the life of Abraham, is a direct response to Kant's using Abraham as a negative example, most famously in uh, his book, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, which is in many ways the um, the highest point of the Enlightenment when it comes to the purpose of religion. Kant, the high priest of, of this age of reason, and religion is, is here for morality. Okay. So, Kierkegaard says no. Faith is not about merely affirming social mores. It's about an individual encounter with the living God, which transcends questions of right and wrong. So in an age where some Christians seem to be quite willing (laughs) to sacrifice other people's children, particularly if they are poor, of color, or not from here, and other Christians seem to be willing to sacrifice historical faith in the name of relevance, in the name of their own selves, Abraham may challenge us in a different way. So maybe that's one way to look at the story. Another way to think to look at the story is that, okay, well, it's not such a big deal because Abraham has already been willing to sacrifice his son. The equally disturbing story, though it doesn't get the same kind of attention, in chapter 21, where... From Sarah's perspective, Isaac is being bullied by Ishmael. And in this version of the tension with Hagar, there's an earlier version. She asked Abraham to cast out the slave and her son. And he does. He gives him a loaf of bread, a skin of water, and sends him out into the Judean wilderness which is basically a death sentence, right? 
a young mother, and a little kid. So Abraham is not only a coward, but he is a co-conspirator in voluntary manslaughter or murder too. And the victims are his former lover, or common-law wife, concubine, whatever, and his son. We all sacrifice really important things for less than noble causes or to keep the peace. We waste time. We waste our consciences. We misuse or ignore our talents. We spend our money on, well, you know, fill in the blank. Years ago, I had an interfaith couple in my church, um, and I baptized their son. Uh, she was a member. Her husband was Jewish. And he, at the time, was working on a research project, writing a book. I can't totally remember what it was. But he um, came and listened to sermons. And he, we engaged in conversations around you know, ethics or around critical thinking. I don't totally remember. But I remember one of our, maybe our second conversation. And... He told the story that his father had been, and his family had been very involved in the synagogue, and uh, father even taught Hebrew school. And when he was, I don't know, 13, 12, 13, he made a very competitive um, hockey team. And his father dropped his involvement in the synagogue. Matter of fact, he said, because of the schedule, we just stopped going to the services. We stopped participating in the synagogue. And then he said this, and I, I, I'm still angry at my dad for this. I said, well, he, he was trying to help you. He goes, no, but you see, was God important or wasn't God important? Was hockey more important than God? Because that's what we did as a family. We, we, we really do need to stop and think about when we say yes to one thing, what we're saying no to, are we sacrificing eternity for things that will pass away? Now, another way to look at this passage is it's a taboo story, right? You know, that it's, it's, it's saying because, why do we not sacrifice children like our neighbors do? And this is because of Father Abraham in this story. And that, that could be, you know, that might be <laughs> its ultimate origin, right? And, and this, um, I, I remember hearing right after the Second Intifada, I was in Israel, and a secular Jewish political scientist uh, got emotional <laughs> when he was talking about the Second Intifada. And this is a guy who's, you know, conservative think tank, Wall Street Journal guy. But he evoked... The biblical imagery of sacrifices to Moloch, the Canaanite god that allegedly children were sacrificed to. And part of what has created some really great tensions and division within that society is partially this sense of they were willing to, you know, 
They were willing to sacrifice their children's lives to kill our children. Now, I think there needs to be a lot of self-reflection in Israeli society about, well, <laughs> what do powerless people do, right, when they're in corner? But I'm, I'm not justifying the horrific terrorist attacks. But nonetheless, this story teaches us that human sacrifice is not an option, which was codified in the Torah. Now today, of course, we don't literally set up altars and place our children on them, but boy, there seem to be so many ways our society is willing to sacrifice children. The spirit of libertarianism on the right and left makes individual rights, my right to hold a gun, own a gun, without any limitations, is more important than maybe protecting children. Or the way children are eroticized by the fashion industry. I'm not talking about chopping eye, I'm talking about the fashion industry and mainstream television and movies. The way we're sacrificing our grandchildren's future in thousands of ways. In terms of debt, in terms of failure to build infrastructure, invest in education, and the wide-scale destruction of our environment. And there are hundreds of people running for office this week who are willing to sacrifice our democracy to get elected. Their party in power is more important than preserving our democracy for our children and grandchildren. Yeah. We don't officially condone human sacrifices. But we're not doing enough to prevent them from happening. I do think, though, it's ultimately a story of faith as we started with. It is a balance to Genesis 18, right? Genesis 18 is about statutes. <laughs> In other words, there are some things that we know are wrong because we don't need the Bible to tell us. We don't need the revealed religion to say, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. We would have gotten there through reason. But there are some things that are ordinances. And I don't think the individual commands are binding. Okay, right? We're not under the dietary law. We have some freedom how we practice Sabbath, the purity laws, etc. right? Those are all things that are Torah-bound and, and not something that we as Christians have to pick up. But nonetheless, there's a principle there that God gets to be God, and we're not. I think we need to see that Kirk, what Kierkegaard saw in this story, that any attempt to just merely reduce religion and faith to a cultural moray, that, that's, we just need to get back to the good old days of God and country. In any ways we do that, it's actually a kind of idolatry. But as a Christian, I think there's a deeper kind of mystery here. I don't think this story ever gets quite resolved. I mean, it's interesting. There's, you know, um, for, for Jews, the tradition is that Mount Moriah um, was 
um, where the Temple Mount is. In the Samaritan Talmud, um, it is where their, uh, their temple was in the north, um, near Nablus. And in Islam, the Quran has that this is Ishmael, and it is located near the Kaaba in Mecca. So these holy sites of Judaism, Samaritanism, and, and Islam all have their holiest place where this act of supreme obedience to God took place. I think for us, as Christians, that is the Garden of Gethsemane, which we read in our New Testament lesson today. There's something about the crucible of what Jesus faces that this story, I think, has its answer. And it's not God the Father killing God the Son, but it's God consenting within God's self to do whatever it takes to save this world. I still can't help but reflect on what was the cost of this event, right? In the Genesis narrative, after this story, Isaac and Abraham never are mentioned together again until Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury Abraham. You have to wonder if the implication from at least the people who edited this work is that there's something happened here with Abraham and Isaac that was never you know, never healed, and <laughs> I think we can certainly understand why. It makes me kind of reflect <laughs> on after Ishmael and Isaac have buried their father, I would have loved to have heard that conversation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Postscript. There was an idea uh, that is at the heart of the Reformed faith, uh, the idea of, uh, from John Calvin. It certainly was an idea that was part of um, our forebears here, the Puritans' theology, uh, this idea of divine election, of uh, that God has predestined some for our eternity, to be with God, to be saved, if you would, to be part of the family of God, and that he has predetermined that some, he's elected some to go to hell. It's a very central tenet of classical Calvinism, not without obviously great debate, but there are still conservative Calvinists uh, who believe this to this day. And there's a story that's told um, uh, of a, in an earlier time where a young candidate was being examined on the floor of Presbytery um, the Presbyterian Calvinist, as to his beliefs. That's how you, that's what happens when you're ordained. And, uh, and this one elderly pastor stood up and said to the young man, Sir, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? And the young man, without missing a beat, said, Sir, I am willing that this whole presbytery 
be damned for the glory of God. <laughs> oh my goodness, right? I've always said, let's not make God worse than we are. <laughs> you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your Heavenly Father give to you? Now may the blessing of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with us all till we meet again, either in this place or his kingdom come. Amen and amen. <laughs>